you're hearing this episode on the Really True Fiction feed, I just want to let you know that episodes of The Liberal Soul won't always appear here. If you're enjoying The Liberal Soul, please subscribe to it on whatever app you use to get your podcasts. Have a great day, and may the Force be with you. The Liberal Soul is a podcast where I talk to people about their passions and their interests. I'll relay some of my own, as well as discuss works and thinkers important to the history of liberal philosophy. The Liberal Soul is meant to represent the people who are curious about the world and live to see themselves and others flourish within it. Please be aware that this podcast has some crude language and sometimes some bad words, but so it goes. Hello, you found a liberal soul. My name is Luke Mason. For today's episode, I am very happy to let everyone know that I'm going to be joined by my very good friend, Danica Weger. Dana is a essentially a lifelong friend, and as you'll discover through <laughs> this podcast, become the chief George Orwell correspondent for this show, and that is because uh, her son is named Orwell, and... Uh, because the works of George Orwell are ones that I have wanted to delve into and kind of wrestle with a little bit in terms of thinking about liberal philosophy and especially in its regards to language. This is a writer that I think could not be counted on too highly for these kind of conversations. So for today's episode, we're actually talking about his essay, Politics in the English Language, because I consider it a good springboard for a lot of his more major, more famous works. So if you want to have the same reading that we are having for this one, Politics in the English Language is the one that we're doing. So just again, if you enjoy The Liberal Soul, uh, you can send me an email at theliberalsoul87 at gmail.com. You can find the Facebook group. You can follow on Twitter at liberalsoul87. And if you are enjoying it, I'd really appreciate a rating and or review on Apple Podcasts if that's how you listen, because that's a really good way to help new people find the show, as well as just word of mouth. So without further ado, I bring you Politics in the English Language by George Orwell with myself and Danica Weaker. And welcome to another episode of The Liberal Soul. I am here today with my splendiferous friend, Danica Weger to talk about some George Orwell. Danica, how are you doing? I'm great. Splendiferous. Yeah. Nice. nice. Thanks. <laughs> how are you enjoying this heat? Yeah, we're in the middle of like record-breaking heat waves in Western Canada. It's hot. It's hot. We're recording this. It's 10.39 a.m. and I'm pretty sure it's already over 30 degrees. And I think we're hitting a high of 42 today. Yeah. You know what helps though? I think you should get a bike. Okay. Everything feels so much better on a bike. Just like cruising along. And actually, I had this thought when I was biking my son to school. Mm. And you know those patches where they cover up the potholes? Do you ever get that feeling on a bike where you're like in a video game and they're like the speed patches and you just kind of whiz oh, through them? <laughs> like Mario Kart or something? Yeah. yeah, or Crash Team Racing or whatever it's mm. called. Yeah. So life is just more fun on a bike. I like. guess I don't because I don't have a bike right now. And I wasn't sure if you were asking about a bike for like some sort of punchline or if it was just like a, just, just an observation on hot days. Well, bikes are nice. It's cooler on a bike. Everything's breezier. Ah. Yeah. Cooler in more than one way. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Yeah, you got it. <laughs> well, I will seriously consider getting a bike. You should. Because um, Danica has spoke in about it to me. <laughs> awesome. There it is. There it is, folks. See, uh, it's, uh, nothing will get you out of your seat faster <laughs> than my bike puns. <laughs> Even if I have to read cycle, in it, Luke. put a them. fork in it. So I'm really excited about this because I've wanted to talk about George Orwell for a while. George Orwell being, I think, one of the I certainly can't say underrated or underestimated liberal thinkers, because I think he's probably one of the most known. But I think a little bit George Orwell or his legacy suffers from the fact that he's so famous. So I think when things get as famous as he is, it's easy to invoke the name without really knowing the underlying principle of why you're invoking a name of something. Yeah. Uh, His work is actually so impressive. And yet the terms Orwellian or uh, 1984 are so kind of like saturated in the culture that again, they can lose meaning because they're like assumed to be so known so you don't have to like go back to the source kind of thing figure out why yeah like charles dickens he's one of the people who actually has really deeply earned their fame and his writing has been great but i wanted you to be the chief orwell correspondent on this podcast (laughs) and do you have any idea why that is the case i mean i would guess but i guess i guess i deserve that (laughs) deserve it I don't know if I can say I earned that. <laughs> I will earn it by doing the work on this podcast. Yes. Yeah. Luke's referring to me naming my firstborn male child Orwell. <laughs> yes. Actually, it's kind of interesting, Luke, because so many people, I just thought everybody would know who Orwell was. And I think you've even witnessed this when I've introduced my son to somebody and people are like, oh, that's a unique name. Where did you come up with that? And every time I'm a little bit like, really? Really? So... Anyway, there's a lot of people who don't know anything about George Orwell. Well, maybe that submarines my earlier point about him being so famous that everyone just knows the name without knowing <laughs> anything. No, he, think... we got to a point where people don't even know his name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think people maybe get that other reference about 1984, especially during COVID when people were saying like COVID 1984 mm. without really understanding what that meant. Right. Yeah. But it could be the fact that my child pronounces his name oh well. <laughs> so maybe that's why people <laughs> yeah. are confused, which you warned me about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought fair. it'd be funny if um, when he was little, he has a friend who calls him oh well. <laughs> yeah. Now he just calls himself that. <laughs> but now he just calls himself oh well. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Luke, I was curious, when did you first come across George Orwell? And do you remember that? Do you remember what the first thing you read was? No. I don't remember the first time I came across him. I think maybe high school was the first one I can remember, although I have a feeling my parents would have talked about it at some point in home school. Uh, let me rephrase. My mom would have <laughs> talked about it at some point in high school, but I don't think I read 1984 before high school. Yeah. I and think I might when we were in high school, it. it was a mandatory reading, wasn't I it? I think so. And Animal Farm, probably. I don't know about Animal Farm. I don't remember reading Animal Farm in high school, but I'm pretty sure I read... 1984 in grade 11. Okay. More kind of like specifically for this podcast, I have been thinking a little bit about the connection between language and freedom. Yeah. 
And I think at some level that seems maybe obvious. Uh, everyone knows the words propaganda and deceit and dishonesty and, and how like, I think most people have like a vague sense of when politicians talk, you're not really getting much substance out of them or yeah. <laughs> they're not really answering a question. And I've always been kind of a nerd for language and vocabulary and uh, that kind of stuff. And so I've always kind of, I feel maybe I've had a, a higher than average radar against kind of like bullshitty language and claims that don't really run through the logic gamut with the words used. Mm-hmm. And so then I'm like immediately put onto an ulterior agenda or motivation by someone using said language that doesn't run through the logic gamut. <laughs> and in my readings, I don't think I've come across a better person who's written on language in this sense of language being used in a decayed and decrepit manner, either out of laziness or out of insidiousness, than George Orwell. Obviously, a huge chunk of 1984 is about that, is about language and about controlling thoughts to control language and that kind of thing. And in a more kind of contemporary sense, I... I, I don't know, with the rise of the internet and social media, I think it's worth kind of going back to a first principles bedrock conversation around what we're doing when we're talking to each other mm-hmm. and what we're doing when we're writing and podcasting and whatever, right? Like any, all forms of media. And so that was kind of like something that was always in the stew of my conception of this podcast was also talking about the connection between language, psychology, and then politics nice. and freedom and all of their intersections. And so even though I think at first blush, maybe you wouldn't exactly correlate language and freedom. I think when you think about it a little bit, there's like actually quite connected. Yeah. And because also I want to emphasize psychology on this podcast, I think that that component of political thinking and Linguistic thinking is often left off the table as a as something worth keeping track of. Um, I'm thinking of like conversations around what a government should do that seem totally unmoored from the fact that what governments should do are run by people for people who have brains and psyches and feelings, and it's very like deracinated from that understanding of human nature. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's an impoverished way to talk about what we should be doing with each other. Yeah. And I think Orwell is probably the best person I've come across. There might be others, but I think he's the best I've ever come across at pointing out these things that I've also noticed. Pointing them out with a certain level of don't give a fuckery which I think is really important. Oh, you noticed that? (laughs) Did you? (laughs) Yeah. The first time I came across Orwell was actually at a punk show, my first ever punk show. Sure. Which I think makes a lot of sense in some ways. And maybe, I don't know if that would stand the test of time. But but I was at, uh, well, you already mentioned um, Propaganda. And the band I was actually seeing was Propagandy. There you go. When I was 13 years old. And I bought some merch. I bought a... A sweatshirt, and on the back had an Orwell quote, the quote, if liberty means anything at all, it means right to tell people what they do not ought to hear. Yeah. And I didn't fully understand that when I was like 13, but what you just outlined, that quote, obviously, 
fits really well with all of that. And mm-hmm. that was the first time I came across Orwell. And then, yeah, in high school, I read the books you mentioned. I also really like his other fiction, particularly Burmese Days. Maybe one day we'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. Well, you're the official Orwell correspondent. There, there we go. <laughs> you're the go-to. Yeah. Uh, the uh, resident expert. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah, that's funny that you mentioned the story of the Orwell quote, because I also have a memory of that too, although <laughs> not maybe not as uh, intentional on the person who I noticed the Orwell quote <laughs> being used. Although, you're right, Orwell is quite punk rock, isn't he? Totally. <laughs> He's totally punk rock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was so uh, punk rock that he was an outsider in his in-group. <laughs> <laughs> he was uh, the socialist that uh, wrote... Uh, pretty excoriating about communism <laughs> and socialism as yeah. it was being practiced. But uh, I remember when I was working in Calgary, there was a new staff who had a hoodie on. And on the back of the hoodie, it was the classic lines from 1984, war is peace, uh, ignorance is strength, freedom is slavery. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, oh, cool. You, you like 1984? You like George Orwell? And the person was was like what what are you talking about i was like oh well your your hoodie it's got like arguably the most famous george orwell line on it and she's like oh this is just jaden smith's clothing line (laughs) it's like okay (laughs) it's definitely come full circle (laughs) any good idea that can be commercialized (laughs) will be commercialized so what are we talking about today yeah actually so today even though we've mentioned basically all the other famous Orwell works. I will also point out, too, that actually my other podcast, Really True Fiction, maybe episode 58 or 57. It was the Canada Day one, wasn't it? I can't remember the number, though. I think it's maybe episode 57 on Really True Fiction. Uh, My cousin David Parker and I talk about Animal Farm. So if you want a conversation on Animal Farm, I would recommend (laughs) downloading that episode of my other podcast. But today we're going to be talking about his essay, Politics in the English Language, uh, which I can't. I didn't actually look up when it got published, but I think it's in the 40s. I think there's a reference in there that means the war had already started or something like that. Uh, and so this essay is a, a polemic against other writers, Yeah, <laughs> basically. So no, I hadn't read this before you asked me to to talk about it. I read it I've read it twice now. And um, I really wish I read this before I went through grad school, Luke. Oh yeah? Why is that? <laughs> well, I think uh, I would have definitely written my papers quite differently okay i think that there's so many just really beautiful simple tools to use in this essay that would have just made everything i wrote so much clearer Mm -hmm. and um i felt like i did write what i wrote with meaning behind it and like truly believed in it but I don't think I necessarily got that across in the best way. And I think that's a bit of a symptom of the whole mm. field that I studied in, in general. So you're saying you wish you could do it once more? Yeah. With feeling? That, that would be what Orwell would suggest I say instead of what I just said. Although maybe without the cliche I just used. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. After reading Orwell... You can only use cliches on purpose. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you can't use it on accident. Well, that part kind of, well, maybe we'll get to that part a bit mm-hmm. later, but that did make me a bit sad about the death of possible Rickyisms. Yeah. 
Yeah. I see. Water under the fridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Worst case on dairy. Well, I would argue those are quite original. <laughs> they are, I guess. <laughs> because They're... they involve a meta-awareness of the expression and how to get them wrong. That's all true. the while incorporating things that Ricky from Trailer Park Boys will know about. Yeah. And they're funny <laughs> as hell. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like, I think even though a book like 1984 is much more thorough and has a more kind of like holistic philosophy and, and probes a lot deeper into the psyche of language and language abuse and propaganda, I feel like this essay is a good setup for that because obviously there's so much other stuff going on in 1984 and I know one day we'll do that book. But yeah, I wanted to do this essay because I think it's a good entry level work from Orwell that is informing all of his other stuff. You know, it's a foundational essay because it's about language and he's a writer, so he uses language all the time. Yeah. And I also just appreciate the fact of seeing someone in a field critiquing their own field, mm -hmm. right? Like there's something kind of, um, I guess, credible in a person who is an established professional because he got paid to write in writing. Like he was mm -hmm. a, he was a political writer. He was, yeah. he got paid to write articles. He got paid to, you know, edit and, and work in a literary sense. And so he's kind of on the inside critiquing. And I think that that's always a deeper way to go about it. Definitely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, pretty much the true meaning of authenticity mm -hmm. for sure and he comes at all of this i think the liberal angle from all of this is that he believes that the issues of language that he saw in his time were not fatalistic or deterministic mm -hmm. he definitely had what i consider to be uh, like a liberal foundational philosophy was that yes, things are bad, but we can improve them if we try, mm -hmm. as opposed to the kind of more fatalistic, things are bad, and that's just the way of the world Oh yeah, kind of thing. And so I think that I want to read the first paragraph of the essay, because he kind of lays that out in that way. So here's Orwell. Most people who bother with the matter at all would admit that the English language is in a bad way, but it is generally assumed that we cannot, by conscious action, do anything about it. Our civilization is decadent. And our language, so the argument runs, must, inevitab must inevitably share in the general collapse. It follows that any struggle against the abusive language is a sentimental archaism, like preferring candles to electric light or handsome cabs to aeroplanes. Underneath this lies the half-conscious belief that language is a natural growth and not an instrument which we shape for our own purposes. And that last sentence is really meaningful to me because it's it's even more than a nod and a wink to the fact that Orwell is aware of our psychologies when it comes to language. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this is borne out in more modern work, which we don't have to talk about today, but Stephen Pinker's book, The Sense of Style, is like a guide to writing. And he talks about, Pinker talks about in that book how, and other places, language is actually a bottom-up enterprise, not a top-down one. So despite what all the um, grammarians and uh, dictionary Nazis might have us believe, uh, words change and they mean different things in different eras. And it actually is the people who are kind of more or less employed in the business of writing that change language. And I think we can see that in our own lives with the way that the internet has changed the kind of lexicon that we live with. Are we supposed to say LOL isn't a word? Yeah. Well, I would say what this essay would say is like, well, the meaning chooses the word. 
And so since we have a new medium, aka the internet, to communicate with each other, we have to figure out different ways of putting what's in my mind into your mind through language. And I think, <laughs> loathe though I am to use it, LOL does that, right? In a way that is harder to, to do. I mean, you could write laugh out loud, but it doesn't look as funny. <laughs> Although every time I do text you that, I kind of imagine you cringing when you read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can get over that. So anyway, yeah, I, I like that. I think that's a good entry point into talking about this essay because it's it shows that Orwell notices a problem, but it's like a fixable one and he's got concrete steps to do that, mm-hmm. which I think is something I've kind of demarcated as a liberal temperament there there are problems but they can be fixed with concrete steps that we can think about rationally yeah it's almost as if he's setting the bar high a high standard for his own team you know seeing the best in in what can be produced Mm -hmm. so why don't you danica if you want give us a little like what was your first impression of his like intention behind writing this essay uh, my first impression was really about just writing for intention and purpose. And if you have something that is important enough to say, you may as well put some backbone into it. Say what you mean. Don't beat around the bush. Mm-hmm. So he probably wouldn't have liked that <laughs> expression. <laughs> um, that's funny, though. And say what you want to say. And don't give a fuck about hiding behind useless language, mm. really. And right. it was kind of a good pep talk, to be honest. That's why I said I <laughs> wish I read this before I went to grad school. And mm. I think it's important reminders for all of us moving forward and what we're seeing, especially like in the age of social media and um, clickbaity type headlines and things like that. I don't know. Those mm-hmm. are kind of some of the first thoughts that came to mind. Right. I think like it's it's useful to note that this entire essay, it's not very long. It's like 20 pages. It's intended as like, I guess, advice Mm -hmm. in a sense for people who are writing in good faith, yeah, like who want to write well, who Mm -hmm. want to be understood, but fall into some pitfalls and some traps. Like you could definitely take some of the ideas from this essay and apply it to people who are intentionally being dishonest through vague language. Um, And he talks about that a little bit in this essay. That's obviously fleshed out a lot more in 1984. But I find it useful because it it reminds people of goodwill and and of intending to be honest where they can easily slip up Mm -hmm. because they don't quite have some sort of conscious fortitude in their own endeavor, right? Like it's like knowing what you want to say is important, just as important as writing well, Mm -hmm. right? Like having a a solid thesis of your opinion and then how to communicate it well, not just how to write as if you are a good writer kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> yeah, and you need to know what it means yourself. But I think he really saw the best in... I do think it's a, a, a piece of optimism. Mm-hmm. I don't know. In that I think he does think that our, there are people with important things to say and there are important people who need to hear these important things. Cut out the bullshit mm-hmm. and say what you need to say because your ideas are important. Mm -hmm. He gives a couple examples of 
very poorly used yeah, language. Yeah, I felt like reading most of the papers I read in grad school. Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> I, I will to reread um, those so many times to well, figure he gives, out what they were saying. He gives uh, five different examples, and he says they're not even the worst. Mm-hmm. They're just picked because they were influential. I'll read um, two of them, maybe, just to give the listener a flavor. Okay. So this first one is by Professor Harold Lasky in an essay on the freedom of expression. Here's that essay. I am not, indeed, sure whether it is not true to say that the Milton who once seemed not unlike a 17th century Sally had not become, out of an experience even more bitter in each year, more alien to the founder of that Jesuit sect which nothing could induce him to tolerate. <laughs> I don't know, there's like five or six negatives in there. Yeah. <laughs> and then... This one is a communist pamphlet, so I thought this was fun. All the best people from the gentlemen's clubs and all of the frantic fascist captains united in a common hatred of socialism and bestial horror of the rising tide of the mass revolutionary movement have turned to acts of provocation, to foul incendiarism, to medieval legends of poisoned wells, to legalize their own destruction of proletarian organizations— and rouse the agitated petty bourgeoisie to chauvinistic fervor on behalf of the fight against the revolutionary way out of the crisis. Holy. <laughs> it's just interesting to read the examples that he... Uh, this is something I like about Orwell and, and Honest Thinkers, is that they give concrete examples of what they're talking about. He doesn't just opine that people can't write anymore. He shows examples of what he's talking about. It's something he talks about in the essay too, but the ability to concretize your point with real life examples, I think adds a layer of believability to your ideas, right? Because um, there's this great term I heard about the author Jonathan Rausch use on a podcast recently called the reality-based community. (laughs) The people who are interested in the reality-based community and to be able to use real life examples shows that you are a part of the reality-based community. Right. What did you think about these poor examples they they remind you of your university papers totally and i think it's kind of interesting to think about the recent scandals that have happened with false papers being submitted to mm. articles right that's kind of what came to mind right away and, and i'm like okay is that an example of people who review these articles themselves not being able to understand what is being talked about in these articles <laughs> It did. It made me think about that. Like the, I can't remember what those papers were. Was it the guy who wrote the anarchist cook? I know. Who was it that did that? You can cut this part out. Did what? Just out of curiosity. What were those papers called that were submitted to the like feminist? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember what they were called, but yeah, they were, they were an intentional hoax. Yeah. Yeah. Hoax papers. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what came to mind. I mean, I think the modern day manifestation of this kind of stuff is definitely seen more in like the academic humanities and sociology departments and Mm -hmm. um he even says like one of the problems is the um i guess in modern terms we would say like the the nominalized uh yeah i think it's called the nominalization of verbs yeah because it removes a conscious agent and there's just kind of like a abiding concept yeah in human life as opposed to people who are uh, acting with the world so like i guess in that first ep- essay that lasky essay you could say there's been a shellianization of the language as opposed to this person writes like shelly mm-hmm. <laughs> right yeah. like that kind of style um i think there's a linguist helen sword maybe 
she calls them zombie nouns. Right. They're just concepts wandering around a sentence without an attachment to any living thing. Yeah, that um, makes a lot of sense. There's been a cancellation versus, you know, Danica canceled the party mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. It removes intention and activity and kind of makes it into a more kind of like abiding reality that isn't connected to any given person. So why is it that we are keen to do that? Is it to take the the pressure off? So in that example of the person who canceled, to make it less about them and more about the action? Or why why do people do that? I guess because I think about these things in this manner, there's kind of like competing goods going on in people's minds. So if you're unhappy with the behavior of someone with whom you're in relationship with, you are kind of at a crossroads of having to inform a person or an entity of that thing without damaging the relationship to a degree where you can't get any future benefit out of it either. Right. So I think there's a kind of mild schizophrenia, I think, Mm -hmm. in the way that we have to approach social problems. Now, I think with academic writing, it's part of it is to appear... um, like Hegel, the philosopher did, to appear smarter, mm-hmm. to appear more knowledgeable. But if you have to write about an issue, or I guess even converse about an issue, you are needing to solve that issue, but without being too offensive to the person who is actually the reason behind the problem. Yeah, I guess in Often. speech, an example would be sometimes when you're conversing with somebody who's English as a second language, mm-hmm. maybe they're more direct in their language, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it comes across in the culture that we currently live in as a bit rude sometimes. Sure, yeah. Whereas the direct language is just more honest. And- <laughs> well, and this is actually a lot of Stephen Pinker's work too in um, okay. The Stuff of Thought. In right. his book, The Stuff of Thought, Language as a Window into Human Nature. Yeah. Like the reasons we use euphemism and and bribes and indirect language is for not realistic but kind of like almost technical plausible deniability mm-hmm. <laughs> uh he gives an example of the 19th century man who asks the woman if she wants to come up to see his etchings in his bedroom kind of thing <laughs> and apparently there was a good there was a comedy writer who was so in tune with the meaning of this that he wrote a po- uh, a cartoon in the newspaper that it, the man was so clueless he insisted on bringing the etchings down to show her <laughs> she he didn't want to trouble her <laughs> Yeah, so I think that the, I mean, this is just my opinion, I guess, but I think we are at a a stage in our culture's evolution where the kind of non-judgmental of other people is pretty paramount. It's kind of like to use zombie nouns or nominalizations or concepts instead of talking about people is kind of a way of getting your opinion out there, but without actually having anybody else be on the hook for the problems that you're noticing. Unless, of course, there are select groups in society that it is uh, socially permittable to blame for problems at any given stage in a, right. in a culture's evolution, then they're fair game. But yeah, I don't know. I think that there's a kind of doubleness of subconscious thinking going on. It's like, if I say the party was canceled, I don't have to say Danica canceled the party, right? right. So like, yeah. you're not on the hook. I don't want to throw you under the bus. But actually, it was COVID. Like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but still, it gets the in- information across. Yeah. So I think in everyday language, there's something of that going on. But again, I think 
and rightly Orwell would hold writers to a higher standard than that mm -hmm. because of the responsibility that comes with being a mouthpiece of kind of like mass knowledge as writers often were, especially in his era of the thirties and forties. I mean, I guess probably the equivalent now might be podcasting like the high level podcasts, like, um, to speak well in your podcast is important for some of the people who have the biggest platforms, I think, right? Yeah, I was going to ask you a bit about how you see your responsibility as a podcaster in <laughs> embracing what Orwell's writing about. Well, I, I <laughs> first of all, I don't really <laughs> have that kind of reach. Well, but but the principle of the matter is that I think the kind of bedrock psychology of language mm -hmm. that Orwell is talking about a little bit and, and has talked in Karl Popper's work as well is that language is not about the words we use it's about the meaning behind the words that we use so the whole point of words is to convey psychological schemas from my mind to your mind or my mind to somebody else's mind that we mediate through language and then therefore our ears and our eyes and our other senses and I think one of the great insights in modern philosophy comes from Richard Rorty, where he makes a really good case in his book, uh, what is it, Contingency, Solidarity, and Irony, that this is actually an impossible task to do 100%. Mm -hmm. So we shouldn't, that actually shouldn't be our goal. Our goal isn't 100% thorough, perfect accuracy in language, it's more or less over time, mostly getting it right. Right. And that is usually good enough yeah. to get us what we want in life. Again, this is like other episodes I'm going to be doing on Karl Popper's work and his critique of Plato. But I do think that language has fallen into the platonic trap of assuming that because we have a word for something, there is something more deep about the word than the thing for which there is the word for. Right. So... An easy idea would be the concept of a dog. There's a platonic ideal dog that all the real world versions of are just bastardizations of, right? So if we use the word dog, it's got to actually, like, what is a dog? As opposed to the kind of more liberal or pauper or Orwell or, you know, me would use. It's like, well, this is the word for this kind of more or less conglomerate of animal that has rough boundary edges, like is a half wolf a dog? Is a half fox a dog? Sure. Like what lineage of wolf to dog is officially a dog? These are not really important questions yeah. to real life. And so that's kind of the difference is like, okay, when I say dog, there's a big difference. So if I say I'm going to walk the dog, there's a big difference between me saying that sentence would be saying, ah, uh, there's... Uh, I know the deepest analysis of what a dog is versus like you at that point know that I haven't taken the cat or the rabbit or the car for a walk. Yeah. Right. Like there's just the fact that there is no perfect final version of the word dog doesn't mean that you're confused when I use the word in social life. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's kind of the first inclinings of better language usage and conception of language uses that I get from Orwell versus mm -hmm. people who are philosophers of language. Yeah. And again, I'll admit, I'm not an expert on the philosophy of language. I haven't read much Wittgenstein, who's the first name that comes to mind, 
as someone who's very deep in the philosophy of language. But I do think that why Orwell is so important is that it's a perennial reminder that what we mean by words is so much more important than the words themselves. And it's so easy to get lost in semantic traps. Mm -hmm. This is why we have expressions like, well, you know what I mean, right? This is why we get annoyed with people who find loopholes in the technicality of language. This is why everybody hates lawyers, (laughs) (laughs) right? Like the fact that I can get 90% of my psychological take on something across to you through language is good enough. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it will probably be impossible to get 100% through through language is kind of just what it is to be a person, yeah. right? Bringing language down a few levels in terms of our like, for lack of a better term, our worship of it makes it way more useful. Mm-hmm. And I think this is something that you, to go back to what we were talking about, like nominalization, zombie nouns, to make an abstract noun out of a verb assumes some sort of platonic ideal of that word. The usefulness of abstract words is that it orients our psychologies to a particular concept that we can then go back more to detailed conversations about. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think he talks about that in the book. He uses the word democracy. You know what? I'm going to read that section because it's really relevant to what I'm just saying. Danica, since you're the guest, why don't you read it out? I'm so bad at reading out loud. (laughs) Okay. Practice makes better. Okay. So Orwell writes, many political words are similarly abused. The word fascism has now no meaning except insofar as it signifies something not desirable. The words democracy, socialism, freedom, patriotic, realistic, justice have each of them several different meanings which cannot be reconciled with one another. In the case of a word like democracy, not only is there no agreed definition, but the attempt to make one is resisted from all sides. It is almost universally felt that when we call a country democratic, we are praising it. Consequently, the defenders of every kind of regime claim that it is a democracy and fear that they might have to stop using the word if it were tied down to any one meaning. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's a little bit of what I was even hinting at at the beginning of talking about how the idea of Orwell has become bigger than any book he's written kind of thing, which I think he wouldn't like. Yeah, (laughs) right. definitely. Uh, Yeah, if if you use these abstract words... And there's just like a kind of vague sense of their goodness or their badness. You Mm -hmm. don't have to really like dig into what you mean by them. Yeah. Which then would hold you to, which is the opposite of the scientific and logic-based mindset or the reality-based community, if we will, because an honest broker will always point out, well, if we're doing this, we're not a democracy. Yeah. (laughs) As opposed to just the word used. And I think... This is something that obviously we still struggle with in the modern age. Definitely. I think the word Nazi is actually a good example of sure. this yeah. as well. And then just jargon that's used in various fields mm-hmm. meant to be exclusive. But when you're trying to engage someone in a, an important discussion about it, all of that is just lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that passage I think is a good example of what I mean. We don't need words to run all the way through to perfection of definition to be able to to use better words for our what's in our mind's eye yeah um because if and 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 especially i think you should be suspicious of someone who doesn't want to nail down or concretize 
the words that they're using. Mm-hmm. To me, that's a red flag immediately that I might not be dealing with an honest broker, or at least someone who is maybe a, a, the the most charitable interpretation is maybe it's someone out of their depth. Yeah, you mean someone who answers with a question with a question? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Yeah, I think a, a good real world world example of this is when so I work in Aboriginal education, and what we say is when. We, someone's real tradition really traditional uh like meeting with an elder or something like that um it's good right yeah real tradition <laughs> they first of all i'm a slow talker to begin with and most elders ask me to talk even slower and then just right away they'll say what do you actually mean what does that word actually mean what are you trying to say mm-hmm. and that's just such a good reminder yeah like, it's just exactly what orwell's writing about mm-hmm. and they just call you out on your bullshit, which is great because in education, <laughs> we love to use useless words. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. This is another suspicion slash observation I've made, I think, of the modern world. And obviously, I think you could could get the modern world um, even back to Orwell's time in this, is that a lot of the disciplines that are, for the most part, mediated through other people ha- are the ones that suffer the most from this kind of muddled language that gets used. Mm-hmm. So discipline, or, or jobs or employments or disciplines that are mostly, I don't know what you would put it, administration-based or committee-based or bureaucracy-based or meeting-based where it's like decisions are made by groups of people about other groups of people or... Organizations with a people officer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the again, the charitable interpretation is that a lot of people are just aware of the fact that they make decisions that are influencing other people's lives and they want to be sensitive about that. And I think that that is true of a lot of people in these jobs. Yeah. Certainly teachers, I think, often for the most part, are you know, interested in the well-being of the students that they work with and for. But I think there's a kind of, I've talked about this, where when your, let's say, professional world is mediated through other people, there's an extra layer of like, did I make a good impression? What are they thinking about me? My future career could potentially depend on a good word from this person as opposed to a bad word. I mean, this is something I've talked a lot about with David, who works Mm -hmm. in politics, because he says there's an expression in politics, say nice things to people on your way up because you never know when you're going to see them on your way down kind of thing. And so this is an observation I've made in other podcasts, but I think one of the interesting things about, let's say, trades, jobs, or feedback mechanisms that come from the environment are more predictable and less forgiving in a sense than feedback mechanisms that come through the interactions with other people and i think that the the reason that you see jobs where the feedback mechanisms are other people are the ones with this kind of inexact and imprecise language is that at some level it's kind of theater mm-hmm. it's kind of like people kind of meta aware of the fact that their careers are on the line here at all times that they're always kind of performing for someone else who could put in a good word for them at some other point and that's like a pretty modern form of professional life yeah right like in in the sense that it's like the last hundred years a little bit longer I mean you can read Dickens novels about the kind of absurdities of the bureaucracies of the legal system that he was dealing with so you see antecedent seeds of this in other in times um and academics i think is a great example of that like if you use hard 
hard to understand language has this veneer that you deserve your place in the university because universities are for the growth of knowledge and knowledge is hard. Oh, yeah. So if the paper's hard to read, it must mean you belong here because this is a hard place to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we were all there in first year university using thesaurus.com <laughs> trying to make ourselves yeah. sound a little bit and, smarter. And I think the non-judgmental way I would want to phrase this is like, I just think that that's not how it has to be. We can keep all the value and jettison all of the pretension because some of the smartest people I've ever read had very easy to understand books. Mm -hmm. You read The Selfish Gene or The Greatest Show on Earth by Dawkins, you know exactly what his thoughts are on mm -hmm. these really complicated issues. You can think about them more. You read Carl Sagan, like one of the greatest, Neil deGrasse Tyson, these science communicators who make it clear, even Einstein, right? Yeah. If you can't explain it to a 10-year-old, you don't know it yourself. Yeah. And so there is a, a different path out of muddled language okay this is deeper than i thought i was gonna go on this essay go go deep Luke. i think this belong yeah well <laughs> <Cut that out. laughs> halfway anyway i think that there is an anxiety in the modern world on the political left that if we actually come to some sort of bedrock knowledge about things some of their sacred cows will be undermined Oh, 100%. And so we shouldn't go find those bedrock realities of our sacred cows. And so distraction, imprecise language, and confusion are necessary. I mean, forget modern political left. Like this was often, the, this is the case of Plato and Marx. We, we don't really know the exact answer to our utopia. We don't exactly know how to get there, but we know we will. And we know it's inevitable. So... If there's some discrepancies in morality along the way, well, that's just what has to happen. And we're not going to focus too much on that because it's going to distract from the more deeper ends justify the means kind of pursuit of things. And I just think that this is an error. I think we can get all of the things we want in ethical life without lying to ourselves or confusing each other about what we mean by words. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I'll talk about a lot more in future episodes in the Karl Popper book I do, but I think one of the great insights of his book that I feel very deeply is that like a bedrock of Western moral thought is the equality of people. And Popper points out, well, this is not a literal equality because people have different capacities and skills, mm -hmm. but it's a political equality before the law by moral demand. Sure. And I think the equality of people is a moral point, not a literal point or a talent point. I mean, these are controversial waters, and I think there's a lot to talk about. But I think the world will still be okay, even if we drop our anxieties around not being totally honest about our own sacred cows, because there is more than enough room for acceptance and tolerance and pluralism in the reality-based community, not just the partisan-based one. Yeah. This is, again, deeper than Orwell gets in his essay, but the idea of using vibrant and, and, and visual language that really connects people to what you're thinking. Because what it also does is it makes you have to know what you're thinking. Mm -hmm. Right? This is why writing and speaking, I think and free speech in general is so crucial is because it actually helps you formulate what you think about something. If you're forced to 
make it social, make it public, make other people engage with it. Yeah. And I think in this day and age with some of the podcasts that people listen to, there's a tendency for people just to be able to repeat exactly what they heard Mm -hmm. rather than kind of dig deep about what they actually think about it or feel about it for that matter. Do you think that the left gets fairly criticized or the progressive left or however you want to say gets fairly criticized or do you think that this is these examples are equally traceable to the the more conservative side as well (laughs) (laughs) oh for there for sure and i mean i think historically speaking their way the ledger is not balanced well exactly and i'm just (laughs) trying to think about at the time orwell was writing this Hmm. versus now and where where he might be thinking about these things in today's day and age well Orwell was writing against everything. (laughs) He was obviously anti-fascist in the most legitimate sense. Yeah, which that word today, when you even when you well, he he would he would uh, a better way to put it, he was anti-totalitarian. Yeah, and so he saw the totalitarian creepings in imperialism. He saw the totalitarian creepings in uh, national socialism in Germany, and he saw the totalitarian creepings in communism in the Soviet Union. So he was, again, aware of the underlying psychological mechanisms that were manifesting in this political language or that political language that are superficially apparently different, but very much often motivated by the same temperaments and desires for power. Mm -hmm. And like subconsciously, too. So I think, uh, you know, if Orwell is writing in the 1980s, he would have been quite skeptical of, you know, the moral majority the conservatives, the sat- satanic panic. And if he was writing now, I think he'd be skeptical of activists on Twitter. Sure. And yeah. what's funny about that is that he actually wrote in, I think it was uh, Road to Wigan Pier. He's got a whole chapter on how the biggest problem with socialism is the socialists, like the kind of upper class people who are arguing for socialism but have no time for the working class and kind of despise them. Mm -hmm. And he says, well, actually, most socialists don't like the poor. They just hate the rich. Yeah. And I think that that's a really useful thing of a psyche to look out for in an activist is like, okay, are they actually advocating for the people they say or do they just hate the other people that they perceive to be oppressing that group? Mm -hmm. And that has to be hashed out through clear language. Definitely. Yeah, I don't know if I answered your question or not. I, yeah. Like, look, I, I think any group that doesn't have the cultural hegemony, doesn't have the levers to pull to control media or major institutions of the culture, they're always going to be the ones who are more interested in open speech. So if in 2021 you see more defensive free speech from conservative groups. That's just because they don't have the power to censor like they did in the 1980s and 1990s. Evangelical focus on the family type institutions are not what's running the media in 2021 in a way that they were in 1986. Yeah. And so I think that's useful to keep in mind when you see the pendulum swing Mm -hmm. in, in that. And, And what's great about Orwell is I know you just make it a principle. Yeah. You are honest about your language and verbiage, regardless of where you stand on a political aisle. Yeah. And actually, that's what gives you credibility when you have to reach across the aisle 
to get a vote, mm-hmm. let's say. Yeah. I mean, again, this is a tangent, but you could say like in American sense, the terms Democrat and Republican, what we mean by those shouldn't be is is more important than the words. And yet it's hard to know exactly what is meant by those other than the word themselves and the, being on the team, as opposed to like the hundreds of issues you might have an opinion on that kind of conglomerates into one side or the other, which again is such a <laughs> a dumbing down of a complicated world. Yeah. <laughs> And obviously, Canada has its own versions of that. Definitely. I mean, I know you've talked about the word elite on previous episodes of this podcast, but in a different sense, like an elite group who agrees upon a definition of a certain word that's not willing to let everybody else fully in on what that word means. Mm. And so hiding that from from the rest of I guess, humanity, for lack of a better word. Right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Just to keep those conversations going so other people can't engage in the full discussion. Do you mean like using a word that isn't in the common parlance, but yeah. using it like aggressively so exactly. that people should defer to it instead of question it? Yes. Okay. Well, there's one other thing, at least in this essay, that I think is also interesting in the way that Orwell talks about language. One of the things Orwell said about himself that he thinks is maybe the main thing that allows him to go to levels that are different than other writers, he didn't think he was more intelligent or more brave or more knowledgeable or anything like that. He just felt like he had the power to face unpleasant facts. And I think that's something that's really tough for a wide swath of humanity, is especially in the Western world is to look square in the face of really, really disgusting, horrible, unpleasant, evil, immoral things and not flinch and be able to deal with them. Yeah. And so here's his little line on that from the essay. Orwell. In our time, political speech and writing are largely the defense of the indefensible. Things like the continuance of British rule in India, the Russian purges and deportations, the dropping of the atom bombs on Japan. These things can indeed be defended, but only by arguments which are too brutal for most people to face, and which do not square with the professed aims of political parties. Thus, political language has to consist largely of euphemism, question-begging, and sheer cloudy vagueness. Defenseless villages are bombarded from the air, the inhabitants driven out into the countryside, the cattle machine-gunned, the huts set on fire with incendiary bullets, and this is called pacification. Millions of peasants are robbed of their farms and sent trudging along the roads with no more than they can carry. This is called transfer of population, or rectification of frontiers. People are imprisoned for years without trial, or shot in the back of the neck, or sent to die of scurvy in the Arctic lumber camps. This is called elimination of unreliable elements. Such phraseology is needed if one wants to name things without calling up mental pictures of them. Consider, for instance, some comfortable English professor defending Russian totalitarianism. He cannot say outright, I believe in killing off your opponents when you can get away with it (laughs) by good results. So probably, therefore, he'll say something like this. While freely conceding that the Soviet regime exhibits certain features which the humanitarian may be inclined to deplore, we must, I think, agree that a certain curtailment of the right to political opposition is an unavoidable concomitant of transitional periods, and that the rigors which the Russian people have been called upon to undergo have been amply justified in the sphere of concrete achievement. (laughs) 
The inflated style is itself a kind of euphemism. A mass of Latin words falls upon the facts like soft snow, blurring the outlines and covering up the details. The great enemy of clear language is insincerity. When there is a gap between one's real and one's declared aims, one turns, as it were instinctively, to long words and exhausted idioms, like a cuttlefish squirting out ink. (laughs) Yeah. Now, I think this is one of my observations, is that one of the things that makes social conversations so hard in our time and our era is that I've come across many adults who don't want to face unpleasant facts about the nature of reality. Mm-hmm. And so there's a kind of, you know, arrested development, I think, in Western industrialized countries where we're so rich and so comfortable and so, and I don't use this word loosely, but we're very privileged in the grand scheme of the history of the world, we've kind of been detached from what most people have experienced throughout history and what a lot of the world still experiences now. Yeah. I won't say that's made us soft, but I think that there is a temperament to not face the dark underbelly of existence. Mm-hmm. And Orwell was able to, which is why he was able to write about the Russian purges and why he was able to look squarely in the face of the horror of the British colonialism of Southeast Asia and be pretty thoroughly against that and to override his own potential interests. I mean, this is a guy that went and fought in the Spanish Civil War for the communists or the socialists in Spain and then was escaping death from them because he was writing about the unethical tactics they were using to get their way. Yeah. For Orwell, the ends didn't justify the means. And so he, <laughs> think about it like that. He went to a country to fight for an army in a civil war, and leaders of that army tried to kill him because he wasn't falling for their propaganda as thoroughly as they wanted. And he had, so it's just like, you know, he went through a lot. He got shot in the neck. He almost died in the Spanish Civil War. I don't know. I just think. This is something I feel like I share in common with Orwell, not to make comparisons. This is just a very small... I think I've never been put off a subject because it's unpleasant. Mm -hmm. And I have met many, many, many people in my my life who, you know, just can't go there Yeah, kind of thing. There's like these psychological defense mechanisms. And clear language, like Orwell points out, cuts down and makes chaff of these psychological defense mechanisms against actually wanting to talk about the dark underbelly of reality that will always come into human life because of the kind of creatures that we are. Do you mean people get uncomfortable when those conversations come up and you can sense they're getting offended by things? Or Well, yeah, it can be you... all of it. Yeah. It can be all of it. I mean, it's kind of like similar to like you don't want to watch a gross part of a movie. Right? right, like body horror. There's some scenes in the Saw movies where you just turn away because it's too unpleasant. And mm. I mean, there's something gratuitous when movies do it. So I'm not like just saying, well, suck it up and watch the gross parts of movies. But I guess in a sense, I'm saying reality is a little bit gratuitous in that sense. Any cursory view of history is just endless tragedy and murder and rape and pillage and death and sickness and and in most of the world and in most of the world yeah like it's all that we don't want to look at it well because it's unpleasant and and there's like there's no reason to explain why it's unpleasant to look at unpleasant things (laughs) i think it makes sense it's just that what makes orwell stand out is that he was able to look at unpleasant things and come up with reasonable alternatives Mm -hmm. so that even though the revolutionary might not get everything they want out of 
the Great Revolution. We can think of reforms along the way if we use clear language to do that. Yeah. I do think that, that it's that nerve that he had to look squarely into the face of the gaping maw of the terribleness of the world and the and the malevolence of the human being towards their fellow creatures and say, well, no, I'm not going to call that pacification. I'm going to call that murdering of a civilian town in your rape and pillage of it. Yeah. Because at least now we know what we're talking about. Or in the example of the Uyghurs, the term re-education right. that is constantly used. Oh, you mean... The forced castration and sterilization of a people who have committed no greater crime than not being Chinese. Yeah. Or that passage you read out, all those examples are currently happening in Myanmar right now, which I'd be, I wish Orwell was around today after his experiences in Burma to, to see what's, what's happening now and to be honest about it to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is actually a more of a social critique of our era. I think this is why it's so much easier to write news stories about increasingly smaller and smaller problems. Mm-hmm. Steven Pinker comes to mind. He has a great quote on uh, academic debates. And he says, the reason that academic disagreements are so vicious is because the stakes are so small. Yeah. <laughs> the re- <laughs> right? I like that. The reason <laughs> why the quote-unquote culture wars are so vicious is because there's like, for the people who engage in them, there's like really no repercussions. Yeah. You know? There's a danger here. The danger is being cavalier of how aggressively you go into problems verbally and carelessly when the stakes are small if you make that mistake when the stakes aren't small. Yeah. And then you let loose the dogs of war kind of thing or something like that. And this is uh, a great example in the modern day is the defund the police idea. Cavalierly going into defund the police. Well, that will only be horrible for everyone. <laughs> so it's not the same. It's not the same as um, disagreeing with your neighbor and how they formulate their word choice. <laughs> so who do you think today in 2021 really embodies all of these characteristics of Orwell. Do you think there's anyone Mm. out there who's doing the things? Yes, to different degrees. I like Jonathan Haidt's work on some of this stuff because he focuses on the psychology behind a lot of things. Sam Harris, Brett and Eric Weinstein, Heather Hying, Barry Weiss is pretty good. On talking about this stuff. The people who actually are the best modern day versions of Orwell are the people who do understand the points in his work, not mm-hmm. just his name. Yeah. Again, why there's so much connection between language and freedom and political freedom and liberalism is that it really comes down to honesty and clarity versus dishonesty and confusion. And the striving of Orwell was always to say exactly what he thought about something in language that everyone, no one could reasonably say they don't understand. Right. And all of the examples we think of and are in his essay boil down to that, right? Like he's obviously getting dispatches all the time that he's reading from all the governments, especially the British one, of like their propaganda around the war and leading up to the war. And he's like, what the fuck does this mean, mm-hmm. right? There's an episode of House of Cards where the lawyers are talking to Frank Underwood, Kevin Spacey's character, and they're saying, I, I don't know if you can get away with this. He's like, well, 
legally can I get away with it? Yeah. And the lawyer says very pointedly, well, the language is sufficiently vague. <laughs> yeah. That's why, that's that's why so I'm depressing. personally quite distrustful of people who use vague language. Yeah. Is because I don't think you're accurate, accurately portraying your intention psychologically to me with vague language. Mm-hmm. This is why I think it's, I've tried to parse out different concepts of the word religion because religion is such a vague term, right? Because it encompasses so many different kinds of belief systems that kind of, again, vaguely are held together by a sense of a supernaturalism. Yeah. It's it's a useful heuristic, I think, to always perennially bring, bring back into the culture that try to know what you think about something and then say it in a way that isn't going to be easily misunderstood. Yeah. And it's, again, it's an imperfect and fallible enterprise. Yeah, Orwell really asks us, do you really care about what you're writing about? And if so, then just say what you mean. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Was there any other parts of the essay you wanted to talk about before we wrap up? I guess just more stylistically, I really like how he wrote this essay because he is talking about, you know, getting rid of useless, outdated metaphors Mm-hmm. which I think is great, but he includes so much imagery of his own in this, which is what he's trying to put forward. Like there's one line where he talks about that. I think one of those examples you read out earlier when he says, the writer knows more or less what he wants to say, but an accumulation of stale phrases chokes him like tea leaves blocking a sink. <laughs> and like That's just yeah. so great. I yeah. love that. And uh, yeah. He's just a beautiful writer. He well, really I think is. that's a useful point for anyone who's aspiring to be a writer or aspiring to be a speaker or aspiring to be a communicator of any sort is like, and I feel this in myself, every like abstract concepts come to me probably more easily than most than the, than on average. Yeah. I think there's like, I'm genetically inclined towards that. And also I've cultivated that, but I also realize that there's a lot of abstract concepts that don't come easily to me and I need examples. I need concrete examples. And so my like default baseline is always, okay, this abstract word or concept comes to mind. Can I think of a real life tangible example to illustrate this abstract form? And I try really hard to think of one. Most of the time I can, but sometimes I can't. And if I can't, I'm left with a decision, okay, do I cut out that or do I apologize that I can't think of one? And I'll try to, as time goes on, you know, mm-hmm. and, and like that's the kind of the ne- mental negotiation that goes on when you're like communicating an idea. Yeah. But again, Steven Pinker is probably at least from a pedagogical or education point of view, the most like Orwell in the sense that when I read his books, he's got very complicated ideas that he always has real life examples for. In the book, The Stuff of Thought, when he talks about the psychology of bribing, he doesn't talk about some academic he gives an example from the movie Fargo. Right. So he uses pop culture to emphasize a, a psychological point. Yeah. Right? This is a sign of a good educator. The best teachers I've ever had were able to make difficult ideas right at the level of comprehensibility as you walk up the ladder of learning. I don't know. I mean, that's a metaphor too. Like the educator can see the top level of the ladder but knows that the student can't and so needs to give them insight every rung one at a time yeah and if you just talk about the top rung the student doesn't know how to get there yeah exactly 
do a lot of that stuff in parenthood. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I imagine that that's your Orwell life right now. <laughs> yeah, that's my Orwell life. <laughs> that's, that'd be a good TV show for you, eh? My Orwell life. <laughs> and you could infuse um, uh, George Orwell quotes into uh, child rearing. <laughs> yeah. So this essay is small scale in one sense that he's talking very specifically to people who are writers and who want to write and are interested in being clear about it. But I find it such a great springboard for the rest of his work, which is why I wanted to do it first. Yeah. I mean, you jump right into 1984. You're jumping into the deep end. (laughs) And I read 1984 about a year ago, and it is cover to cover incredible. Cover to cover simple and profound and thorough and psychological. Yeah. I almost wish it wasn't a required reading in school because I think most people read it when they're like 15 or 16 and then they never think they have to revisit it. I think what's so great, why both 1984 and Brave New World, I think, stand out as the great dystopian novels to be legitimately fearful of is that they're the two that deeply understand the human brain Mm -hmm. while they're talking about political power. Again, I find so much talk around power, the concept of power and political power being often if it's used at the group level, you don't have to deal with the psychological level. But if you talk, if you bring it down to the individual level, you do have to bring it to the psychological level, which means you have to wrestle with the concepts of resentment and anger and distrust and dishonesty as opposed to <laughs> class interest, Yeah, which is why I think... Orwell was so crucial is that he was able to surgically dismember abstract arguments that that seem really impressive. But once you get into the details, uh, what about the brains of the people who are dealing with, with this stuff, you know? Yeah. So anyway, any final thoughts? I just wanted to thank you for for inviting me to read this with you. Thanks for having me on your podcast, but thanks for bringing these ideas forward because I think well my intention is to really carry them forward with me in my work and I think a lot of these are such tangible Mm. things that we can go out and you can just start implementing a change in being clear with your language and saying what you mean to say Mm -hmm. and it's not always easy I think it's not it's tough because there is a culture around kind of euphemism definitely in administration and bureaucratically inclined jobs right 100 percent. and maybe even one day we can do some kafka <laughs> who is like a smaller scale orwell but also with some deadly results in the trial so all right <laughs> the well. trial is basically a book where a guy gets passed around from one authority figure to another the cops the lawyer the he oh gets arrested gosh. that gives me like anxiety he gets arrested he he gets tried he gets convicted all the while talking to someone who isn't responsible for the decision that they're carrying out and then at the end of the book spoilers for the trial he gets killed mm. without ever once knowing what his crime was or why it was being brought against him brutal so i think of all, like, the, the term Kafka-esque comes from predominantly the work in the trial. And and you know what? Like, at a much smaller scale, like, I get anxious. I don't get... I'm not an anxious person at all. The thing that does give me anxiety is, like, something involved in the world that's, like, really abstract that affects me, like, 
credit rating or (laughs) icbc policies anything anything (laughs) the 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 bureaucracies of things that affect your life but nobody actually really cares about yeah who but like it's they care about it is that their job and it's faceless and then it affects my mind but for somebody else it's just like a number yeah (laughs) you know it's like that's what gives me anxiety (laughs) (laughs) i think that's a that's a relatable thing yeah well, thank you for your kind words, Danica, and thank you for your first of many appearances on this podcast as the chief Orwell correspondent. And if and you know what, this went well, you could probably be the chief dystopian correspondent as well. All right, bring on the Atwood. Yeah. Oh yeah, all of it. Awesome. Well, maybe one day you'll have Orwell himself on here. Oh, maybe. Junior, junior Orwell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I am. Um, I want to thank everyone for listening. I really appreciate anyone who takes any time of the day to listen to this podcast. Uh, you can send an email at theliberalsoul87 at gmail.com. Uh, there's a Facebook group you can join. You can subscribe on all podcasting apps. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, I'd really appreciate a rating or a review. And you found the liberal soul. 